Welcome to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. Today we join the Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion YouTube channel for an exclusive interview. Okay, Vinyl Community, welcome to the Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion. I have the pleasure of introducing Simsy Nichols, who is here. And uh, Simsy is the daughter of Roger Nichols. And that is the recording engineer uh, for Steely Dan and many others, not the writer with Paul Williams, <laughs> who did a lot of great songs as well. So um, two great guys in the industry with the same name, about <laughs> near same era. So uh, really interesting. Welcome, Simsy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, David. And uh, I... Can I please say before we get going, I love your backdrop. I noticed all the Steely Dan records behind you. It actually brought a tear to my eye. Um, I, I Yeah, I see them. Yeah. So I can't wait to yeah. talk about all those that you have. Oh, yeah, we will. Because I've been collecting them since uh, since literally day one. I'll, I can really remember where I was when I heard Do It Again, the single, the first time. Yeah, where were you? I was in a Harvey's dime store in Gary, Indiana. Oh, <laughs> mm, uh, see, so you heard it. Okay, you heard yeah. it, and then what? I was like, that is so. The beginning of it was so unique and so different. You know, the instrumentation and everything. It was just so different than anything I had ever heard. And there was a record store literally next door to this place, and I ran over there, and they hadn't gotten it yet. But they told me what day it was coming in, so I got it on the first day it was released, the single. Uh, and then I got the album, of course. And, uh, oh, so, my gosh. Oh, so, I love that. I love yeah. that. Back yeah. in the days where you remember where you were when you when you heard it and you had to stand in line and like... I did, yes. There get the, get it? Yeah. yeah it, was, it was the iPhone of the day. <laughs> I, like, I even remember that. There was a few albums that I, I waited outside... Um, the record store and uh and, and sometimes they would release them at midnight like i remember oh, sure. yeah, yeah. nirvana's mtv unplugged i was so excited to get that record i remember on halloween like wow. we had to go to the record store at midnight to get the to get the album yeah yeah i spent many hours in peaches record stores in <laughs> in uh denver when i lived in denver so mm -hmm. And then, you know, going a little bit on the engineering side, uh, three, three of these albums here are quadraphonic albums. They're four-channel. So I was mm. big into four-channel. I've had somebody ask me about that. Like, uh, you know, t t okay, so tell me about that. Because I've had a few people ask me if I have my dad's quadraphonic mixes. Yeah. And so that was the precursor to 5.1, right? That was yeah, where yeah. it was like immersive. Four, yeah, we call it 4.0 now They because it was basically <laughs> four channels with no subwoofer channels separate. Mm. So it really, but it was four discrete channels. And there were two types of, actually three types of systems. Two of them were called matrix encoding, where it was like canceling the uh, left and the right channels to create a new image in the back channels. And that was SQ and QS were the two brands. SQ being like uh, CBS Columbia. And then and uh, then SQ, QS, sorry, was uh, Sansui. Mm -hmm. And your dad used QS, which was actually a better technology. Uh, and so it's uh, so these actually when you play them on like a Dolby uh, uh, 
decoder or any you'll get some of that four channel it's not the true qs if you have a qs uh, decoder but but they really do and the mixes are different the songs sound a tad different mm. so they're they're somewhere to be found i would imagine um, yeah that's another that's another dig another that's rabbit it hole. Yeah, well, I know. well if you i would love to help you try to trace those down because they have a lot of uh they were really well done in their day. I mean, uh, and there's, they actually had eight tracks of them too, I think at the time, uh, which were, um, you know, four discrete channels versus needing a decoder. So anyway, it's just uh, a rarity to have these quads. So that's why I mentioned it. Yeah. I'm happy you did because I, I, like I said, I, I just recently had someone ask me about those. So there is interest again sure. about having that immersive sound. Yep. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And in vinyl, I, you know, I really do wish my dad was here. I'm sure most everybody who's lost someone, like, they're always like, oh, I just wish they were here so I could talk to him about this one thing. But yeah, I would love to know what he thought about the vinyl resurgence. Sure. Because oh, I think that he, you know, my dad died in 2011. And I think that was on the cusp of vinyl starting to come yeah. back. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I would be so interested to, to, to hear what he had to say about that. Because, I mean, I think he, like, he left vinyl behind. I mean, my dad was the father, grandfather of digital. Like, he was... Wendell. Wendell. <laughs> yeah, he was the digital was. champion. And not that he didn't like vinyl. I think... I think... I mean, I think he just liked the quality that he could get from CDs better. Mm-hmm. But assuming, you know, the CDs were made from the right masters. Sure. Because that's sure. a conversation I've heard him say in all oh, the yeah. lectures I've talked about. Like, sometimes the vinyl does sound better. Oh, yeah. Because they made it from the right master. And then when record companies or whoever, it was time to make the CD, they would just go get whatever was in the vault. Yeah. And the CD, yeah, sounded less subpar. Yeah, than than the vinyl, which yeah. And the truth is, I mean, your your dad was a techie guy. You know, let's face it, (laughs) like me. I mean, I saw some of the computers he used, and I go, oh, that's a that's a digital equipment corporation. That's an Osborne. I remember those computers because I used them because I'm I'm a programmer too. Mm-hmm. You say he used assembler language to write this stuff. I know what that means. That's that's machine language. It's it's the hardest to code with because it's right at the machine level. So, yeah, he, he I don't know what that. he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. He was, but he was that guy, and so it really was in his wheelhouse to be digital. You mm-hmm. see what I mean? I think mm-hmm. it was a natural thing. It was for me too. And back then, and I try to tell people because I'm I'm a big analog uh, fan too, but in the day when digital came out, it was the thing. Oh, the newest. Oh, my gosh, you got to do digital. And the truth of the matter, the quality of the digital back then wasn't nearly as good as it is today. It has progressed tremendously. Mm. So, um, so, you know, you could only get so much out of early digital stuff anyway, because the sampling rates were, were different and the equipment, the decoding wasn't as uh, as sophisticated as it got as the 90s and 2000s went on. So, uh, and I'm sure your dad experienced that. I mean, I don't know, was he still doing work in the 2000s? I assume he was. 
Yeah, yeah. My dad worked. He he um you know, he started teaching a lot uh towards the end. I mean, he taught up until a month before he died. Like he loved he loved teaching. He was great. He was a great I saw him on stuff. He's really great at it. Uh, he loved teaching one oh one too. He he was one of those brilliant minds that could um have the patience and the and the and the wherewithal to explain like basic concepts to beginners. And he really loved that. And I thought that was really interesting because my dad could talk way up there. Like yeah. way up there. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? But he, he could also yeah. he could he could take those really complicated concepts and bring them down to manageable bite-sized pieces for the the beginning audio engineer and i really did appreciate i i even went to one of his master classes and i'm not a recording engineer and i was like yeah i could do that like that sounds easy like anybody could do it right <laughs> now, now did you use the word bite-sized because of digital was that a oh no <laughs> <laughs> no and i, I, know, I know. and i am yeah. not named after simpty code dead no, pro yeah, no. i came out before simpty I came out before. So is there a story behind your name? Yeah, my dad, he just made, he made it up. Wow. He made it up. Another thing he invented, I guess, was my name. So yeah, he, he was so. having a really creative spell in the late seventies, early eighties. But you know, it's so unique. Uh, you know, I've never heard it of course. And, and, but it, it almost, it's funny. It fits you, your personality. It's just, it really is interesting to me. Your name is uh, quite a reflection of your spirit. I'd say. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It's interesting, right? How people yeah. kind of grow into their names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So your dad. So you said your dad was teaching up until uh, toward the end, which is uh, yeah. amazing. Because mm -hmm. I know he, you know, he knew for some time what his uh, situation was. So he lived out his passion. Mm -hmm. Yep, he did. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? It's like, you can't just sit there and think about it. So he was always definitely like a busy, busy guy. So, you know, yes, he was working in the 2000s. And, you know, I, I, I've been looking at his interviews and his lectures for a decade now, because there's always been a goal to make a documentary about him. So I've had the pleasure of kind of learning more about my dad through all these lectures and interviews and stuff I never would have sat through when I was a kid. Like as a teenager, I wasn't going to listen to my dad talk about audio. Like that wasn't where I was. That wasn't what I was into. Uh, I was, I was more into keeping my dad on, on his toes, you know, I was like <laughs> not paying attention to what he had to say. So what it's kind of a long-winded response to you know yes he was working in the 2000s and um it's interesting how digital kind of peaked and then it and then it tanked again with mp3s that he had to kind of battle like the 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 degression of audio <laughs> like it was like there was this great medium to store records in a way that would help keep them, you know, in theory, safe for longer than storing them on tape. Like mm -hmm. my dad was a big proponent of digital, not necessarily as a medium, but as like a storage. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he would make fun of analog a lot, but like if somebody wanted to record an analog because they loved the warmth and they loved the way it sounded, he was like, great, record an analog but just transfer it right away to digital. 
And so, you know, when he was on the uh, board of governors, you know, in the producer and engineers wing, and they would get CDs for best engineered record in the, you know, mid 2000s, he was like, I, you know, it's like these records, they have, there was no range. He was like, he just kind of wanted to throw them all away because they're kind of, there came a time where people were just making everything really loud and compressing everything and nothing had dynamic range. And then you had the MP3 and, and he was like, how are we spending like a million dollars on a record? And then y'all are compressing it down to like this yeah. thing that has no right. life left into it. Right. Squeezed out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, he, he he loved digital audio and just like with anything i mean it it, it can be the best thing or it can be the worst thing depending on how the person uses it as a tool yeah yeah and the mastering engineer <clears throat> makes a huge difference and even more so in vinyl because you're cutting it to a physical medium so you have to make sure you control it so that those grooves aren't running too close together to each other. There's a lot of physical things involved in vinyl that aren't involved in, in digital, per se. So, you know, the mastering engineers now in the vinyl world are what makes a difference. You go, oh, if Kevin Gray did it or if Bernie Grunman did it or if Ryan K. Smith did it, then you know it's high quality because they know what they're doing but it can be done improperly and uh, just throwing it on the record uh, is uh, really, uh, and if you try to do the loudness war on vinyl, it distorts crazily. So it's a whole different, it's a whole different world, a whole different medium. Uh, but what I really enjoyed about what you released uh, with the, uh, the video you did, you know, that the quality of that really comes out and it sounds really dynamic. And uh, even through YouTube, it sounds dynamic. Can't imagine what it sounds like in the studio sitting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, you know, that tape, I, 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 I'm so happy we got it transferred. It was sitting in a desk drawer for a long time, but it was, um, you know, when I was moving at the beginning of 2023, I decided to transfer the DAT. And so the DAT tape, my dad had possibly came from a rough mix and, you know, Steely Dan didn't release rough mixes. So it was something that, it, the only way that this would see the light of day is if it was just shared with everybody on YouTube or um, like, you know, we did the story in Expanding Dan and I mean, there, there would never be an official release. It can't be redone. I mean, that was also, you know, in 1980 Steely Dan. I mean, maybe at the best we could get it live. Like that would be fun to hear it live, but you know, that's... I think what everybody got so excited about and what I really appreciated is they were like, okay, we know the source of this dad. This literally came from, or the cassette tape, like this came from Roger, the recording engineer from the studio. And it was the best sounding version they had heard and possibly will ever hear in its natural state. Now what's been really fun is these mid-20s you know early 30s these people have been coming to me and they are remixing it they've created like an ai robodon they've created a robodon 
My dad actually probably would have loved that. They're like, you know, that these guys and girls out there made like an AI Donald to help like put in the pieces that were missing on the cassette tape. Like, that's so good. <laughs> it's scary. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. So, you know, right. There is something to say about the feel of like what came out of that rough mix. Um, Genuine. You know, it's, it's the thing. It's, it's the real deal. Mm -hmm. And it's a reflection we haven't had. I was curious related to that uh, if um, you had to have any discussions with Donald Fagan or the Walter Becker estate or anything before doing anything with that. You know, I have not talked to them in a while, and what I shared was not, like, something new. Okay. It already existed on the internet. So what I was just sharing was, like, a better-sounding better. okay. version of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, like, I wasn't releasing anything, like, new or, gotcha. like, I would never do anything sure. with my dad's files that were were not in line with what my dad would do. But that was, like... Like, like people were already really listening to it to a really really crappy version, and yeah, I was really like, improved, right? <laughs> I was like, look, I mean, here you got you you all have it. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think Donald has PTSD about it anyway. Like, let's not bug him too much. No, of course not. <laughs> I, think, yeah, I think that was I like mean, a. <clears throat> he's an intense person. He's an uh, intense person, and uh, and that really is a benefit, you know, for what he's done. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but I know, uh, and I think I might have emailed you that you know I had gone to uh, uh, Analog Productions in Kansas and met Chad Cassum, and they are the ones who are re-releasing Steely Dan on what's called UHQR, which is really high-grade vinyl and remastering by Bernie Grunman. And they, uh, so far, they've come out with Can't Buy a Thrill and Countdown to Ecstasy. And they sound unbelievable, almost in a way like a new experience. Really? Uh, yeah. What's new about it? So what's compared to like what it's you have, the quadraphonic? Just, well, the mix is different, so I wouldn't ever compare that. But okay. let's say back to the originals, I have originals of it. It just opens up the sound stage. It just has a much, I mean, the OGs were very, originals, we call originals OG by the way. Yeah, same. Yeah, right. Same. Yeah. So, so um, the originals were always solid, but this kind of took it up a notch. It kind of opened it. It was more airy. It had a little more distinction in some of the instrumentation and vocals. Huh. It's just, uh, yeah. And I mean, like Can't Buy a Thrill is, pro is one of my top three albums. So I mean, I know that album like mentally by heart, right? Ooh, I love it. So when you start to hear new things after that, then you know, some, you know you've got something <laughs> that's great. So Bernie Grunman uh, remastered that and, and did a fabulous job. And uh, so... And Pretzel Logic is coming out July 28th. Uh, so, and then uh, Asia is September 28th, I think. And then Gaucho, J December 1st. Ooh, yeah, that that's fun. So this is a Steely, uh, actually, you know more more probably than me. So this is a Steely Dan official vinyl yes. yeah. redo. Yeah. What they right? Nice. Yeah. That that label is a second, a, like a, a independent label that makes a reissues, mm -hmm. and so they got he got a contract with Donald and Irving Asimov and you know the managers and the labels. Uh, Universal, I think, is where it's at now, and so Acu Acoustic Sounds and Landlock Productions, uh, they are coming out with the 
high-end versions of that, which are all analog, from analog tape, mastered analog, and then press. So it's AAA, what they call AAA. Okay, good. Yeah, and those are all AAA, and they're on two albums, so they're 45 RPM. So the songs, there's only like two to three songs per side because that cut is, you know, gives it plenty of room uh, in the cut, you know, to get all the dynamic range out of it. Whereas <laughs> there's a there's a version that Universal releases for $30, and it's a, just a commercial one. It's 33 RPM, one disc, and it is the Bernie Grundman master taken to digital and then put to vinyl. So it's an ADA format and okay so, so it's i'll say degraded or change whatever it's it has a digital step let's just put it that way whereas the ones that they're releasing now don't right so okay. wait what's that step it's going from it's going from in the in the 30 dollars version it goes from the analog master mm-hmm. uh, remaster that uh, bernie does then it goes to and he gives a copy a digital copy of that to universal Uh, And then Universal has someone cut that to vinyl. Okay. Yeah. Whereas what what they do with um, with uh, the all analog is the tape, the original tape that Bernie his remaster is cut to the lacquer, actually that presses the record. So it goes from analog tape to the lacquer, which then presses the record. So Mm. there's no digital step in there. Interesting. Yeah, because I. uh shared a story with um, a friend the other day about my dad uh, driving those lacquer, the first, the, oh God, I don't know. My Master tech tapes. lingo is, yes, on dry ice. He put it on dry ice so that it wouldn't eat, like, Oh God, you're y'all's technical, uh, yeah. Oh well, if it may, it may have been a lacquer, I mean, if you know, if it was a physical, uh, you're saying dry ice, I'm not you're that used with tape. So, well, we'll have to have him explain it. I have yeah. a clip. I have a clip I could share with you, but yeah, he he the the lengths that he went to make sure that what they did got to the consumer was was some some major feat. Like they really did that, and my dad took a took a. a went above and beyond to make sure that they delivered the best quality they quality. could. Yeah. And then he was there for the follow through. Like that's also it. Like he, you know, he, he didn't quite trust everybody to do the right thing. So sometimes he would follow it through all the way till making the, you know, the, 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 the test copies or test the, yeah. yep. Yeah. He would sit there and make he sure should. they used the right thing and, <clears throat> and check yeah. it. And so maybe maybe they've been feeling him from the other side. What they're doing sounds great. I think yeah. it sounds Roger Nichols approved. Yeah. No, no, Chad Chad Kasim's label and what he does reissues. They're they're very um, stringent to using you know original master tapes and following the process, not letting digital get introduced unless digital was in the original like Nightfly. Tape. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Which sounds amazing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not a question, um, but but yeah, you're right. Uh, so so yeah, Chad is 
very much in that spirit. There's another label in Germany called Speaker's Corner. Mm. Uh, that, and they they released Can't Buy a Throw many years ago. Of course, it's like three or $400 on the used market now. But <laughs> yeah, but but my point is there are people who really still you know have that passion for mm. maintaining the integrity of that. And that's really what my channel is about a lot. And, you know, I don't know if you heard of Mobile Fidelity. That's a label, that a reissue label or MoFi. Mm-mm. And they come out with, they did Asia back, whoop, wrong side, Asia back in the 80s, they did Asia. Uh, and so they always had claim to fame of analog master tape to cut lacquer to that. And then last okay. year in late July, it was found out that they have been taking original masters, uh, and in some cases copy, but almost mostly original masters, putting them onto DSD, which is digital, which is a like a tape format uh and and a and a dsd can be a one bit sample or a four bit mm-hmm. sample they use four bit now newer but the point is they weren't all analog anymore they weren't pure aaa mm. they were analog to digital to analog and this was a controversy because they didn't tell anybody everybody, everybody was always presuming you know they never said they did they didn't weren't doing it but they didn't say they were doing it, you know. So it's kind of like sins of omission. They didn't bother to tell anybody, and everybody mm. assumed, everybody assumed from their legacy that everything was that way. And they even say original master recording on the top. And the fact is, the truth is, it was an original master recording that was used, but it was taken to tape mm. and then brought to a analog. So why would they do that? I wonder well, to there save. There's two time or money like why do people t- cut corners well there, there was a couple of things first of all they started experimenting with that in the late 90s with sony because sony developed dsd and so they they did that on the digital side and released actually uh tom petty's full moon fever using dsd on cd which that's already digital you that's not a compromised state but it, at some point, they said to themselves, I think, well, what would happen if we took a and made a DSD copy and tried to make a vinyl of it? And so they did it in 2007 with a release uh, there, and nobody knew it, and it sounded great. And they did another one in 2011, and nobody was any the wiser. And then over time, as they started to have trouble getting tapes, because these companies don't want to release these master tapes, to be curried across the country or whatever, you know, and so getting tapes was getting harder. So now they can take this DSD recorder, take it to uh, Sony or whoever is the owner and get a copy made, then bring that DSD back and then cut the vinyl from that. Yeah. Archiving, like your dad said, Mm -hmm. from an archiving or backup standpoint, it makes great sense because tapes degradate. That's a fact of life. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is that value. And my thing is, if they would have come out and just said, look, we're having issues getting tapes, we find that these sound just as good. And we can, at least we can freeze that tapes, you know, capability in time with mm-hmm. that DSD. Whereas if the tape is continues to be used, it'll degradate or even in storage, it can degradate. So they had a great argument. They just never came out with it. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, better to be forthright and then yeah, just surprise absolutely. people. Yeah, so it's a reputational thing, you know, in that regard. And there, there's a lawsuit, and there's a $25 million lawsuit now, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, 
You know what? That actually reminds me of the lengths my dad went to um, put together the Big Chill, the Big oh. Chill uh, uh, record. So my dad actually, uh, there's stories of him. He's talking about doing that and where he actually, you know, people wouldn't release the master tapes and he had to actually physically like go to someone's house and it was like falling apart and he had to like go with them to the place like they wouldn't release the master right. tapes, which I also get because I mean, things happen. Universal sure. had that fire, which so it sounds like the master tapes weren't in the fire because they did say there was stealing and master tapes in the fire, but. Yeah, I was in 2008, and I, yeah. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. The New York Times article came out, and it stated a bunch of tapes that were in there. And mm -hmm. it later came out that many of those were not in there because they were found. or say Somebody said, no, we've got them over here. So Iron never, Mountain or yeah, something. Right, exactly. They never retracted that, which I think was a huge mistake. Oh. So it still lives even on the Internet. If you go look up that article, it's still going to say the same thing. Like Steely Dan and Nirvana and like right. all these things got yeah. burnt up. Yeah, and, and, and many of the examples given and turned out not to be true. There were presumptions. But here's the thing. It sounds so often like nobody knows where anything's at. You know, it's always... <laughs> That's why my dad, you know, until he parted ways with Steely Dan, I think he had the master tapes because he was the only one that he trusted. Sure. I mean, just because things get lost, like, you can't really fault... I. The record companies, I mean, you know, c come on. There's these huge Goliath entities managing thousands of artists and probably have hundreds of thousands of tapes and lots of employees. And I mean, there's just so many things that can go wrong. You can't really fault them for not knowing where anything is. <laughs> well, if the Library of Congress ran that way, we'd be in big trouble. But <laughs> Okay, true. Like, I was trying not to. I I let, you I'll know. do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll just try not to. Yeah, okay. I won't give them a pass. We'll Sorry. just we'll just say, you know, record companies that, that uh, you know, go by. You know, I'm just. Well, no, here's the thing. Trying to here's, make a joke. Here's the thing. Who would have thought that 30 years later anybody would give a crap, if you know what I mean? I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I, I'm sure my dad thought like, okay, everything got transferred to digital, and there we go. And now there's there's a swing back to the analog and the and the yeah. the pat and the love there for analog. Okay, right. so I have a question for you sure. then, huh. because I heard this. You know, when I was growing up, my mom, even before she met my dad, and some of my mom's friends said that when Asia came out, it was like jaw dropping. Like it was the best sounding record they had ever heard. Do you remember your experience first hearing Asia? And I want to know what your thoughts were on that. Uh, again, you know, as the thing about Steely Dan for me is that every album in some ways sounds different. You know, there's there's different little things that they do. And that one really kind of did the, the little bit of the fusion, the jazz, and the, it really, you know, really nailed that down. So right out of the box my impression was, wow, they really have moved into a new sphere. And the the uh, instruments were so clear. You know, they were just so precise. Because uh, I used to listen on headphones a lot when I was a kid because my mom would scream when I played it loud. So, <laughs> But good for you because that's actually a really awesome way to listen to it a is. record. It is. It is. So it was always... Um, just uh it, you know it was so different 
and so precise that, you know, my, my thought was, you know, somebody has made the perfect album. Yeah. You know, I love to hear it. Yes. Because, because I mean, and I'm a Beatles fan. I love all the original, you know, I love all that stuff, but this, this creates like a visceral emotional reaction almost. Mm, I love that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just the, the precision of the instrumentation that they use and everything about it, you know, it's kind of, it reminds me of a really good meal when the cook puts all the right ingredients in the right place and then they present it perfectly to you. Mm. You take that first bite and you go, oh, now I know why this is $48 and not $12, you know? (laughs) But Asia yes. was not any more expensive than anything else. So. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I love to hear that because I've actually recently been getting into sound therapy, and so I've, I've kind of, I've really, really started appreciating the way that my dad captured sound, mm-hmm. and it's almost like in a therapeutic sense where you can, you can hear all these beautiful instruments like you were in the room. Yeah. And there's something really, really therapeutic about that. And then, and then, yeah, to have it to be presented in a way, I, I mean, my dad got into the recording business because he hated, and I hate to use the word hate, but he really did hate clicks, pops, noise, surface noise. And he's like, it took away from the music. So that was, that was his mission is to figure out like, you know, I can make this sound better. And he'd yeah. build stuff and he would try and, a lot of it was about mic placement. It was about oh, big time. where you put the mic and and getting the sound as clean as possible. So he didn't have to do anything in the mix. Like he didn't have to put EQ or he didn't have to add the extra stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. And there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. No, that's a, that is a huge uh, strategic element to the outcome is mic placement. Uh, and, and there's, you know, there's records where... Uh, I was reviewing one recently, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, but it was like the hi-hat hit. You could tell the mic was too far away from the hi-hat. It wasn't catching the crispness of the hit at all. And and it was really mm. kind of disappointing because you know it's there, <laughs> you know. And if it was, whether it was not close enough, the quality of the mic, whatever it might have been, mm. I don't know. But, you know, it really, and me being someone who, who drums, that I'm always listening for that, you know. I'm always kind of more tuned in to the percussive side of the music. So, you know, what I would love to hear, honestly, and again, no slam on any singing, but, you know, just instrumental-only versions of these songs where the, you know, from the mix where the vocals aren't laid in. Sorry, Donald, no offense. No offense, exactly, no offense (laughs) at all. I love the, you know, I just, from that level, I really, I enjoy instrumental versions of songs because I can immerse myself in that part of it more. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to part one of this interview with Simsy Nichols. And as always, you're welcome to come back and join us for future Vinyl Community Podcasts.